As the uh, kids prepare for their time in God's Word, let us prepare for ours by turning to Psalm 12. Psalm 12, as uh, we continue, or better yet, resume our series in the book of Psalms. We started it two years ago. We took a two-year break, and now we're back. (laughs) So we're picking up where we left off. Psalm 12 is where we will be, and we'll continue in the Psalms uh, for a while. It's good for my own heart, and I think it's good for us all as a church, as a congregation, uh, to be wrestling with the text on a weekly basis. We spent several months looking at uh, certain topics theologically and preaching those expositionally, of course, but I just like working through a book of the Bible and not knowing what it's going to say. (laughs) To stare at something and, like at first glance, not really know the significance of it, and then to wrestle through and to see what God's Word had to say. So this is why we've returned to our sequential exposition And since it's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament, we're going to spend some time in Psalms. Psalm 12, I'll read all eight verses for us. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Sometimes, I feel like Athanasius. That name may not be familiar to you. He's a bishop from the 4th century A.D., And it was his lot to almost single-handedly battle for the church's understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. We are crystal clear in our own day that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. But there was a time in the fourth century, where this was a question up for grabs. And listen to this, not just in some small minority, 
but among the church as a whole. Raising the red flag on this particular issue, a council would be called in which all the churches of the time, at least their major representatives, would show up, and they would try to clarify this particular issue. It was called the Council of Nicaea. It was held in 325. And it seemed that when everyone left that particular council, that this particular doctrine of Christ was going to be on solid footing. They had defended the deity of Christ to some measure. But then something strange happened. There would actually come a reversal in this battle where the main proponent of this heresy named Arius would essentially get an ear with the Roman emperor. And he, for a time, actually began to believe the Arian heresy and would promote it among all the churches. Now, for us, in our 21st century Western context, we can't imagine how an emperor can have an effect on the churches because we're so big on the separation of church and state. And yet, we need to understand, at this particular time, the church and the state were one. Therefore, if the emperor says, this is what's going down, it's going to go down. But stubborn Athanasius, (laughs) he would be the guy that would continue to fight for doctrinal clarity on the person of Jesus Christ, despite being opposed by virtually the entire world. And the phrase that every church historian knows and still quotes to this day to sum up this man's life is Athanasius contra mundum. It was Athanasius versus the world. Do you ever feel like it's you versus the world? There is this tendency, not just in my own heart, but I hear it among our people, to lament the general direction of our society and culture. We cry aloud about this being one nation under God, yet it seems so godless. From the legislation that is passed to the decisions made by the Supreme Court to the things that are taught in public schools to what is uh, modeled and heralded on television, it is, I think, a Christian pastime to lament the world. It's going to hell in a handbasket, some would say. It seems to get worse and worse. And and friends, without me whining about it too much, indeed, we are in the minority. We, We always have been. And yet there is something unique about our own day. It does seem worse than it has ever been. It's not just that evil competes with that which is good. It seems to be dominating it. I was in uh, Claremont, right outside of Orlando this week, giving a talk on gender and sexuality. And there was a, a man who spoke up afterward who said, hey, you know what, I'm so glad that you spoke on this. He says, and the truth is, you know, the church has been in this position for 2,000 years now, you know, fighting this same battle for 2,000 years. And I said, you're right, the church has been fighting this battle for 2,000 years. I said, but what's unique about our own day is that we've never fought this battle on such uneven territory. 
Whereas people used to have some kind of sense of shame. They had some kind of moral guiding conscience. Now we truly live in a culture where that which is wrong is not only legally protected, but societally heralded. In fact, a church member sent me this. And this is just an example, by the way. I could give you examples from uh, ethics. I could give you examples from sexuality. I could give you examples of truth claims of the scriptures. But I think this one can kind of sum up our cultural moment pretty well. Uh, Just this last month, uh, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus uh, sang a commissioned work uh, by the Oakland um, Orchestra entitled, A Message from the Gay Community. The song itself is replete with all kinds of uh, doublespeak and arrogant claims of the unstoppable power of those who adhere to God's word. I will not read the entire thing. It is not worth your time. But I will read you two verses. You think we're sinful. You fight against our rights. You say we all lead lives you can't respect. But you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked funny just this once you're correct we'll convert your children happens bit by bit quietly and subtly you'll barely notice it you can keep them from disco warn about san francisco make them wear pleated pants we don't care we'll convert your children and then here's the ironic line we'll make them tolerant and fair as if they have the moral high ground Five different times, the song assures the listener that your children will be converted. Um, Friends, this is the world in which we live. This isn't some guy with a guitar in his basement publishing something directly to YouTube. This is a formal organization recognized and millions of people have listened to this. It's a different world. And that is just on the sexual front. We could lament the things that are taught, indeed, in the educational system. We could lament the things that are taking place in our country politically. And so the truth is, there is a sense in which it is us versus the world. But if that disturbs you in any way, as I think it should, I want to assure you that you're not alone. The text of Scripture that we read today assures you that you are not alone. You are not the first person to have ever felt the overwhelming pressure of an evil world crashing in around you. This is what we should love about the Psalms. They're not that heady. They're targeted at the heart If you've ever felt that pressure, if you ever wonder, like, what are we going to do? This psalm was written for you. It's a poem. It's a song. And and the great thing about poems is is they're so vivid. They're so expressive. Uh, They get truly to the heart of the issue. Uh, There is an argument here laid out. It is logical, but it's not about the logic. Uh, It's about actually understanding like how God would have us feel in light of the pressures of the society around us. Uh, This psalm will adjust our heart 
It gives us some pictures that are very vivid, and it's also arranged in a very interesting way. And I need to let you know this so you can fully appreciate what's here in Psalm 12, and then we'll jump in. I've said this many times, Hebrew poetry works differently than Western poetry. Uh, We like rhymes, and we like uh, meter. We like for things to kind of like sound the same and take about the same amount of length. Basically, if it looks good on a page, we like it. Uh, The the Hebrews weren't as much into the form as they were the function. They really loved ideas. They loved for ideas to rhyme, if you will. Sometimes they would put one line of one idea, and then they would put another line of a similar idea. They thought, oh, wow, that's good poetry. They don't care about how it sounded necessarily. They wanted to know if if the thoughts matched up. And one of the famous ways that they would arrange poems, this is just kind of like some of our poems have certain rules, so did some of theirs. One of the famous ways they would arrange poems is uh, by what we call today a chiasm, shaped like the letter X. And basically, it's these similar ideas that kind of resemble an X if you were to chart it out on a page. So I'm going to like just give you the left to right, even though Hebrew is written from right to left. So there would be one idea here at the very beginning of a verse, and it would correspond with an idea at the very end of the verse. Well, then the next idea would be here in verses 2 and 3, for example, and there would be an idea that would correspond with it from the second from the bottom. And then a lot of times there would be an idea right in the middle, and that would be the focus of the verse. You're going to see that here. I want to go ahead and trace it out for you, and then we're going to walk through it just like this. All right, the first thing that you'll notice, again, just the overview here, is that in verses 1 and 2, we have the problem of what I'll call propaganda. So there's a problem that's mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Skip down to verse 6 and notice that he's going to mention this problem of propaganda again. Or excuse me, verse 8. I'm sorry, I was looking at the wrong psalm. (laughs) Uh, Verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. You see how there's a problem in the first two verses and there's a problem in the last verse. Then in the middle, you're going to go in a little bit more and you look at verses 3 and 4 and there's a prayer. There's a prayer of concern in verses 3 and 4. And then there is a prayer of confidence in verses 6 and 7. They correspond, so there's those inner ideas And then right at the heart of this thing, right in the middle of the poem, is a promise from God. So you've got, let's just review this outline very briefly. You've got the problem, the prayer, the promise. And then it's going to go back the other direction. The prayer, the problem. It's chiasm. So with this, let's... Let our hearts resonate with that of the psalmist. We will try to follow this uh, Eastern format as much as possible, but I think it'll be very easy for you to identify with, even if you're not familiar with this shape and structure. So the, the, the poem begins with this particular uh, problem. Notice, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished. From among the children of man. What is he lamenting here? He is lamenting that there is no one else around him who cares a rip about what God thinks. He he particularly uses the name Lord, which is Yahweh, it's his covenant name, it's a relational name. And with that, he uses a corresponding term to talk about those who are in covenant relationship with him. Uh, the, The translation here is godly, 
Uh, but the Hebrew word is hesedim. It's the, the loyal ones, the ones who are loyal to God. That's why it repeats in that next line, which is a synonymous thing. Uh, the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. He's saying, God, there is a small group of people who are committed to you, and it seems like we're the only ones. Uh, we're the last ones in existence. It's like the godly, the righteous, those who are committed to Yahweh uh, are an endangered species. In fact, they're not just endangered. They're like the endling. They're the last of the line. Uh, there is no one else it says that they've absolutely disappeared. Uh, verse 2, notice how he continues his complaint. Uh, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. This is why I call it the problem of propaganda. It isn't just that there's the wicked around them. It is also that they are spreading mistruth. Uh, he feels like uh, like the world is replete with ideological and interpersonal error. And, and just think of that first line there. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. You don't have to do much uh, cultural crossing to get to a point where you think of a world filled with people lying to one another. I wrote down just a few of the ones that we see in our own day. The social media feed gives the impression that our house is always clean and our children are always happy. It's a lie. <laughs> uh, the car mechanic tells you that you need a major repair to your car, and he even has a printout to prove it. And it's a lie. Not kidding. Just had, to, I'm not even going mention who, but they told me, man, you got to get this thing fixed. It's going to cost you about $600. And I went to this other guy that I trust. He's like, man, there's nothing wrong with this at all. It's the world in which we live, friends. Uh, the dentist even tells you that you need comprehensive dental work, even though everything looks and feels fine. These are all, by the way, like true stories. Like, this is stuff that has happened to me. This isn't some random thing. The AC guy tells you that you need a new unit, even though it was replaced only four years ago. The news report tells a story with such a slant that you can't even recognize what actually took place. Someone sells you their car, saying that it's all in good working order until the Carfax report arrives. Uh, the businessman submits his taxes, reporting significantly less income than he actually made. Maybe this one has happened to you. An email comes telling you that you've become the beneficiary of $5 million, and all they need is your checking account information to verify. Things get more serious here. The abortionist tells the young lady that this will be less painless and complicated than the removal of a tooth. The drug dealer tells uh, the interested party that these pills are fun and non-habit forming. The guy, the young lady meets online on the online dating site, says that he is 21 years of age and single and loves Jesus. The preacher flatters his congregation calling for their seed money, promising God's richest blessings in this life. Lies. Everyone's lying. There's outright lying, and then notice the next thing that he says is taking place in this culture dominated uh, by the wicked. He also laments in verse 2 
that everyone utters lies to his neighbors and everyone with flattering lips and a double heart speaks. A flattering lip. You know what flattery is, right? That's, that's when, uh, when somebody butters you up. That's when somebody tells you something that you want to hear because they want to get something. I, I, re- I distinctly remember being uh, 15 years old and my mom telling me, Justin, why is it that the only time you're nice to me is when you want something? That hurt me. But it's true. We all do it. We all have this tendency just to say what other people want to hear because we want something. Uh, the, the literal phrase here, by the way, is with smooth lips. You know that is. In our day and age, we use the term, he's a smooth talker. Uh, he knows the right words to use. Uh, th- those, by the way, especially with a persuasive command of language, uh, we know this, that they do not always have a positive regard for the truth. One can manipulate truth to accomplish one's ends, and it happens every day. It happens with politicians, it happens with advertisers, it happens with lawyers, it happens with salesmen, and it happens with preachers. People are good wordsmiths, they know how to say things in a way that everybody will like, kind of get along with it, but they're the entire time just using you to get what they, entire, what they ultimately want. Tell me if this is not the world we live in. And then there's one more thing that he mentions here. He says, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The Hebrew text literally reads, with a heart and a heart. With a heart and a heart. Kind of makes you wonder what that is. Well, there's another spot back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 13, where this same phrase is used. Literally in the Hebrew text, it reads, with a weight and a weight. And in the context of Deuteronomy 25 there, it's actually referring to someone who uses one kind of weight for themselves when they're measuring something out and another kind of weight when they're selling. Uh, they're, they're, They're being deceitful. What this text is saying is that people are operating with a heart and a heart. They have one kind of heart that they present toward one group and another kind of heart that is truly for themselves. They're the Janus, they're the, the person that has two different motives, the heart being in the Hebrew mind, like this, the control center of the entire person, the double life. And we have it, friends, people lead double lives. They are one thing in front of you, they are one thing at church, and they are something entirely different when they are in a different uh, setting, a different group, or by themselves. I think the psalmist would have felt at home in Oceania. Familiar with Oceania? It's the, the land in uh, George Orwell's uh, fabled 1984. It's this dystopian novel uh, about uh, a society that has gone totally amok. This totalitarian dictatorship has taken over, and they've convinced all the people that there is a new way of thinking, and it even introduced a new language. The new way of thinking is called doublethink. You have to be able to think of two contradictory things at the same time. Here's the most famous example of doublethink, and this was the, the party slogan of the time, uh, this political language. It was basically that political prisoners, for example, were placed in places called joy camps, which were enforced by the Ministry of Peace. 
the, the political language uh, included war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Uh, it's just kind of like just empty, meaningless stuff. Nobody could think of anything. But let me tell you the most dangerous outcome of living in Oceania. It was the actual double speak. It was the language. It's called newspeak. It was when you can actually craft words in such a way that they do not mean what you think they mean. I'll give you some examples of newspeak that have made their way into our own culture. Uh, early termination instead of the murder of the preborn. Adult entertainment instead of pornography. The gaming industry. Instead of gambling, downsizing or restructuring instead of layoffs. No kidding, came across this one the other day. Alternative facts instead of lies. <laughs> Reducing costs instead of cutting salaries or cutting jobs. Sleeping off a big night out instead of passed out drunk. Non-performing assets instead of debts. Friends, what the text is teaching us is that depravity, the depravity of man is seen most readily in his or her mouth. (laughs) He's not just concerned about a wicked society in general. He's concerned about the pollution that is constantly coming out of their mouth. If you have ever driven from the mountains outside of Los Angeles, descending into it, you notice that there is this orange layer of smog that covers the entire valley, and then you eventually find yourself immersed in it, and you're thinking, oh, it looks okay here. Friends, the pollution is coming out all over, and he is lamenting the effect that it is having. This, by the way, is the telltale sign of depravity. Do you remember what Paul would say in Romans chapter 3? And he's actually quoting, interestingly, uh, Psalm 14, where he says, there is no one who is righteous, right? Remember, he's making his universal claim that all apart from Christ are in sin, and this is his proof. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Friends, what the people say around us reveals what they really believe. What is really going on in here? This is why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the the good of his treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This is the world in which we live. Why are people speaking this way? Why are they doing these things with their lips? It's because it's in their heart. And the psalmist is saddened by this. And so he moves from expressing the problem. And this is where we can take great note. To turning it into prayer. The pressure or the problem is then converted into prayer. Contrary to what we do is just expressing the problem. He takes the problem a step further, and he gives it to the Lord in prayer. And I want you to notice what happens in verses 3 and 4. Look at it in your text. He says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. 
Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us. Now, this is kind of violent. I mean, are you noticing in the text, he says, cut off their lips, cut off their tongue, and then he says, cut them off. Now, I don't think that the psalmist here is actually praying for surgery to take place on their lips or tongue. But in the emotion of the moment and the rawness of language, he just says, God, please put a stop to this. It is devastating. The effect that this is having on society is devastating. He is asking that all this boasting and all of this error and all this deceit would come to an end. He's asking that, that it would stop at its very source. My kids like to play Minecraft. It's this little game, this creative world, this little monsters that kind of roam around. And they always get really excited when they find a zombie spawner. Because this is where all the little zombies come from. And if you destroy the spawner, you destroy the rest of the zombies. <laughs> well, this is exactly what David is saying. He's saying, look, destroy it at the, destroy the spawner. Please stop allowing them to spread their damage and carnage throughout society. And then he even takes it a step further. He not only prays that they cut off their lips and their tongue, but he says, cut them off. Cut they themselves off. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, with our lips with us, who is a master over us? Notice, they're so arrogant, they really believe, whether it be the politician or the purveyor of the modern expressions of the sexual revolution, they believe that they will win. They're just so confident, they're so cocky, they're so arrogant. And he's saying, God, please put a stop to this. But it forces a question for us. Why does he speak so violently? Why does he want it to end? Why is he praying for their destruction? It doesn't sound very Christian, does it? He just said, love your neighbor, love your enemy, turn the other cheek. I think of that famous line from um, Thomas Jefferson. And he was talking about religious freedom in the context of uh, the Constitution. And he says, the legitimate powers of government extend to such acts... Only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no God. And then here's the famous line. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Jefferson is arguing that government shouldn't intervene in causes of religion because in his view, it doesn't really matter what one person or another person believes or what they say. As long as they don't pick my pocket or break my leg. Why would we then, I mean, the logic is sound, why would we then be so concerned about these empty words? It doesn't say a thing in this text about them doing anything to pick a pocket or break a leg. They haven't harmed anybody, supposedly. They just say stuff. What's he so worked up about? Why is he so angry about this mistruth being propagated when people aren't being physically harmed Well, friends, we need to take this a step further. Lies, flattery, double-heartedness do eventually pick pockets and break legs. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words, they can really 
comfort you. I say this very somberly, and I'm not trying to be creative by any means. But if you want to know the power of smooth speech, persuasive words, lies, and deception, just ask the sexually abused child or the trafficked immigrant who was promised a job. If you want to know the power of words, ask the elderly lady whose retirement has been stolen from her. Ask the young lady robbed of her innocence by the smooth-talking, nice-looking young man. Ask the drug-addicted homeless if words can hurt when they were merely promised a good time. Ask the soul burning eternally in hell if the words of their sweet-talking sermonizer hurt them. Friends, words have consequences. They affect our entire society. (laughs) I would even say to you, you could ask uh, Madison Welch if words would hurt. This is just a good contemporary example. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with his story. It happened in December of this last year, and I was actually blown away at the results, and I even got swept up in it a little bit myself. Uh, Madison is a young man from Salisbury, North Carolina, and what would happen was he he would eventually um, drive from his home in Salisbury up to Washington, D.C. with three guns in tow. Uh, He'd make his way up to the Comet Ping Pong restaurant, which is uh, not far from where we used to live in D.C., and upon arrival, he will fire his assault rifle into the pizzeria, believing that he was saving children trapped in a sex slave ring. Did you hear this story? It's true. This just happened. Despite the noble attempt, however, there was only one problem. There were no sex trafficked children. He had the wrong information. He had been misinformed by fake news that he saw on Facebook. Mr. Welch surrendered after the episode and almost immediately apologized, saying that he made, and this is his words, an incredibly ill-advised decision to try to save these children who were never there. He added, the intel on this wasn't 100%. (laughs) Duh. But here's the deal, friends, because of words... Because of words. He unnecessarily risked the lives of those in that restaurant and will now spend four years in jail. Pickpocket, broken leg. Words. So things are bad. The psalmist is saying, this has got to stop. Lord, you have to intervene. Please put a stop to this. Please stop them. Don't let them keep saying these lies. And when the poem is at its worst, we finally have the interjection of this promise from God. 
This is so rare, friends. If you've read Psalms up to this point, this has not yet happened to the book of Psalms, where God himself is going to speak directly in the poem. Normally, it is the psalmist talking about God. But here, God himself speaks directly, and notice what he says. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Notice there is this promise of protection. God knows that these, these words have deadly consequences. It says the poor, those who cannot help themselves, the poverty stricken, uh, the, the righteous who are being taken advantage of by those with all the social capital, they're plundered. They've been robbed. The needy, again, this speaks to the effects of, of those who do not have a support system around them, uh, those who do not have good personal resources. They're groaning in pain. They're crying out in pain. I mean, I, I imagine like a parent, they know what it's like to like hear the cry of their children, and they know when it's just like the cry <laughs> to get what you want and the cry of pain. This is the cry of pain. God hears it. And he says, I'm going to arise. I'm going to get up. I will, I will be, I am very much aware of this situation. And here's what's going to happen. I will place them in the safety for which they long. You're worried about a corrupt culture. You're worried about the impact that it's having on you, your children, those that you love. God says, I will put a stop to it. And I will protect you in it. This is the promise of God. He speaks to this. What he wants us to have is this confidence that he will take care of those who have been marginalized by the world at large. If you feel like you're in the minority, if you feel like it's you versus the world, if you feel like there is no one else who understands the pressure that you take on for trying to live for Jesus, the psalm says, hold on, God will intervene and he will protect you. It's such a wonderful promise. I came across this line, and I thought it was so good, from an ancient author. He says, blood and tears both have voices. They cry louder and are heard farther than thunder. They travel even to the throne of God, though shed in some secret place on earth. Friends, when you bleed, when you cry, God hears, and he will act. He will act. He will intervene. Can I ask you, do any of you here today feel that your faithfulness to Christ has put you at some kind of disadvantage? Does it seem like following Christ has put you at odds uh, against the majority of the fellow citizens of the world? I think there may have been a day and age in which being a Christian uh, garnered you some social capital. But every sociologist I've ever read says that those days are gone. In fact, I used to think that we lived in a post-Christian world. I was talking with someone this week who was reading a book on this very topic, and he says, no, they don't even call it a post-Christian world anymore. It's called a post-post-Christian world. <laughs> We're to too post beyond what it means to live in a Christian land. Think about it. Are our singles in this church, if you're single in here today, are you being applauded by this world for your sexual purity and your commitment to monogamous heterosexual marriage? I don't think so. 
Uh, what about uh, the businessmen and businesswomen in this church? Are, are you being applauded for your commitment to your family and the tight ethics that you run for your company? For those of you who are retired, are you embraced by your community as you refrain from gossip and regularly drinking yourself to excess? I mean, are you on the in crowd? Are they asking you to serve on the HOA board? I think of, I think of this acutely. I see my son sitting here. Are our children winning any popularity contest by embracing the existence of God, the exclusivity of Christ, and the goodness of his moral laws. And I say this especially as a new school year begins. Friends, it is a war zone. And I understand why some people want to homeschool. But for those, I don't care if you put your kids in a Christian school, in a private charter school, try that one, or in a public school, the pressure is on. And I assure you, no one is walking around behind your kids putting a sticker on them saying, great for you for following Jesus. They are in the minority. And that is why we all the more need to recognize that God himself has promised when they bleed, when they cry out in pain, God will come to their rescue. He will preserve them. He will keep them. He will protect them. We wring our hands and we worry about things getting worse and worse and worse and we moan and we cry and we lament and rightfully so. But notice the progression that the psalmist has taken us from the problem to the prayer to the promise. Friends, take it the full length. Take it to where it's supposed to go. Your problems are opportunities for prayer. Prayer affords you the opportunity to recall the promises of God, which then in turn, and this is beautiful in the poem, once we recognize God's promise, we still continue to pray. But this time we pray differently. In verses 3 and 4, it is a prayer of concern. In verse 5, we have the promise from God. But notice verses 6 and 7. It is a prayer. But this time it is a prayer of confidence, not a prayer of concern. It was the promise of God that changes the way that the psalmist prays. Notice how verses 6 and 7 differ from verses 3 and 4. He starts off with praise. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And then he makes the petition, you, O Lord, and notice how he says it with confidence, you will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Not you may, you might, you could, you can, you will. You will. Because he's reflected on the promise of God, he speaks to God's words, and he puts it in contrast to the words that are being spewed forth by the society at large. They say things that are empty, they say things that are corruptible, and notice what God's words are like. They're like pure silver, refined in an earthen furnace seven times. I don't think I have to give any ancient Near Eastern lessons on metallurgy, but you understand that the way silver is refined is through heat, and all the bad stuff comes to the top, and really... It only takes a couple times, but the text says God's words are like this being done seven times. Seven, of course, you understand, in the Bible is a number of perfection. It's just culturally, that's what it meant. It meant perfection. It's been done to the nth degree, kind of like in our own culture. I don't know where it came from, but we think the number 13 is unlucky. 
In Hebrew culture, they think the number seven represents perfection. And what he's saying here is God's word is perfect. It is perfectly pure and priceless. Now, generally speaking, what he's doing here is he's giving us some, something to hold on to. If the world is spewing forth its pollution, we can breathe in clean, fresh air in the word of God. It is a resource for us that is pure. There's no dross in it. There's no impurities. And it is precious. It is valuable. It is not empty, unlike the words that are around us. And the beautiful part of this is that we have access to this word. I was just uh, a couple days ago. We have some family in town. They're here with us today. And I was talking with uh, my, my cousin uh, while we had to go make a run to Target. And we're on the way back. And I'm asking him about what he's reading. If you hang around me long enough, I'm going to ask you the question. It just happens. It's like the conversation piece for me. And he's taking a new job. And this new job is sales. The boss is requiring a lot of them. And because of this particular season of life, he doesn't have that much time to read. And so he said to me, well, the only thing I'm really reading right now is my Bible. I was like, that's awesome. So what are you reading? And he's telling me that he's reading through the book of Esther. And about this time, I want you to catch the context. Everybody else is already in the house. And we're coming in with the bag of ice from, from Target. And about this time, like as I'm opening the door, he, begin, he continues what he's saying about his reading in the Bible. And he says, man, it is so good. Like, I just can't stop reading. I am so excited about what I'm learning. And he's saying this as we're walking into the house. Now, keep in mind, the people on the inside haven't heard the previous context. All they hear is him walking in with a bag of ice saying, this is the best book I've ever read. It is amazing. It is changing my life. I can't wait to read it every time. And then all of a sudden, someone pipes up, what book are you talking about? <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> I was thinking about that same thing. Like, that, that's us. Like, people, like, we hear that, we're like, what would, what would be the best book ever? I wonder what that is. <laughs> and if I would have been the one sitting in the living room and someone said the same thing, I would have asked the same question. Friends, we undervalue what we have here. This is clean, cool, fresh air in a polluted world. Breathe it in. The promises of God are pure and they are priceless. There is so much junk out there, so much worthless junk. And we're just taking it in. And so the psalmist is actually modeling for us in this value of God's word, I think an alternative strategy for dealing with a corrupt world, and it's very simple. Take in more of the pure and the priceless than the corrupt and the contaminated. There's this... Um, uh, brother, I think his name's Brett McCracken, wrote a little book called The Wisdom Pyramid, and in it he's actually trying to argue for what Christians should be taking in their minds. And on the pyramid, like at the very bottom is the scriptures. And then I think on the next level he has um, like uh, history, and then he has like nature and art, and then he has at the very top of the pyramid in the smallest spot, this is what I want you to catch, is basically anything from the internet or social media. <laughs> He's not saying you don't take it in. He's just saying, let that be the smallest thing that you take. 
You know what I'm concerned about? This is very pastoral concern for a moment. I am so concerned that so many of us have flipped the pyramid and we take in mostly stuff that we read online, mostly things that we see from social media, and the scriptures are the things at the very top in the little part of the pyramid. And we wonder why we are so concerned about a corrupt world. Maybe we would have more confidence if we truly valued God's Word. Now, I don't have any legalistic prescriptions for the ratio of time that you spend uh, in God's book versus Facebook. But I would say that, man, you are missing out. You're missing out on the opportunity to be breathing in the fresh air. And because of this praise of God's priceless and pure word, and because of how it reminds the psalmist of God's promises, notice how it changes his prayer. He says in verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. You will keep them. What he's talking about there is these promises. You're going to keep these promises. You are going to do this. You are going to protect us. And then he says, you will guard us from this generation forever. Even though we are immersed in a hostile world, even though we are the last ones standing, we're going to be fine. He's going to protect us from this generation. The world could be going to hell in a handbasket, but you won't because God will preserve his people. And so this prayer of confidence is here, and it is strong, it is good, but I love the realism of this psalm, and we bring it to a close. Notice, he started off in verses 1 and 2, describing the problem of propaganda. He's going to return to it once more, and he says in verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. That little um, phrase, the wicked prowl, in many other translations uh, is, is rendered this way, the wicked strut about. Now think about that, strut about. Uh, they're just so confident, they're so arrogant, and what gives them such confidence? Why is it that they strut about so shamelessly? Well, notice the psalmist acknowledges, vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is now what is valued in this day, and because of that, they do feel like they have uh, the high ground. But that being said, friends, we need not be concerned. If the heroes of our modern culture, whether they be pop stars advocating for the undermining of gender and biblical sexuality, or politicians and presidents being praised for moral ambiguity, or religious leaders being lauded for a lack of clarity, uh, God will deliver his children. What he's saying in this last lament is, yes, it's still there, but don't forget the promise. God will protect. It may be us versus the world, but we can remember, as Yogi Berra taught us so well, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. <laughs> Friends, indeed, we are still in the heavy stages of this battle over good and evil, but technically the war is over. The end has already been decided. God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has already entered this sinful world on our behalf, and He has already overcome it. He has obeyed God's law perfectly for those of us who could not. 
He has fully satisfied God's righteous wrath for those of us who have broken said law. And he has risen again from the dead as proof positive that said payment has been accepted by God Almighty and thereby previewing for us the victory that we ourselves will one day eventually enjoy. Life victorious over death. And he is returning to eradicate all evil and wickedness on this world and place us in that ultimate, full, final position of safety. This is the good news. Christ has accomplished this for us. He knows about this. He has entered into this. He has secured our protection for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in him alone. If that's new to you, if that doesn't make sense to you, if you're wondering what that means, how you could be on, if you will, the right side of not history, but his story, (laughs) to be on his team as opposed to the world's team, to know what it's like to be able to enjoy the special protection of God, I would encourage you to talk to a church member around you or one of the pastors as you leave today. Because friends, though this psalm recognizes the difficulty of the world in which we live, It renders us good news. I say this to those of you who are already on the right side of his story. For those of you who could identify with the godly and the righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I just leave you with three simple exhortations. They do not rhyme. They are not alliterated. But I think they are accurate. In in light of what we see here, I would encourage you to turn your pressures into prayer. Turn your pressures into prayer. When feeling overwhelmed by the wickedness of this world, don't just whine about it. Talk to Jesus. Sometimes I think that we would be better off reading the news or reading our social media accounts on our knees. Could you imagine what would happen? Like if we literally got on our knees and we turned that into a time of prayer. Oh, I can't believe that this is happening. God, please intervene. I can't believe so-and-so is doing this. Lord, please help. I can't believe this person said that. God, please intervene. Could you imagine what would happen? See, that's the habit, friends, that I think that the text is encouraging. Acknowledge the problem, but just turn it into prayer. I'm not saying be glass half full and say, oh, the world is such a wonderful place. I'm saying acknowledge it and convert it into an opportunity to depend upon the Lord. I love uh, what Spurgeon said, help, Lord. Just those two words, that's all you need, help, Lord. He calls it a short but sweet, suggestive, seasonable, and serviceable prayer. (laughs) He says it's a kind of angel sword to be turned every way and to be used on all occasions. Friends, help, Lord. There's the prayer I would teach you. As, As the moment comes, as you hear that next thing on the news, as somebody tells you about the most recent legislation, whatever it is, help, Lord. Help, Lord. Call out to him. Depend on him in prayer. Turn your pressures into prayer. The second thing, if that's already a habit for you, I would prize God's news over the world's news. Prize God's news over the world's news. It is my heart for you, friends, uh, that you would be more influenced by God's world, I mean God's word, than our world. 
I read an article the other day, and I don't remember the exact stat. People make up stats anyway, so I don't know if it's dependable. <laughs> it's a world of lies, right? But it said that only 5% of a congregation's influence comes from its own local church. 5% of the teaching that a congregation gets on the Bible comes from the church. So it means that everybody else is somehow like getting the info from whatever their podcast is or whatever their news site is or whatever their social media profile is or whoever their favorite preachers are or whatever. Now, I, I'm not saying that 100% of it should be at this church. All I'm saying is we all are living in a generation in which we've been inundated with information in a way like we've never been inundated before. And it is my sincerest desire because I can't be on everybody's like internet for you just to crave the scriptures to the degree that it crowds out everything else. That you would long more for God's word than what you hear in this world. And then the last thing, hold on to his promise. Hold on to his promise. You know the old meme that's been going around for several years now and they've tried to turn it into a few different things, but it's most basic format. It's original is Keep calm and carry on. Friends, I think that is a line for the same. Just keep calm and carry on. The text is assuring you that all is well. For us to continue wringing our hands in sinful worry over how secularized society is getting shows that we have not put into practice that which is modeled for us in this text. I think we should walk out of here today acknowledging uh, the realities of what's going on around us. Uh, somebody said it this way, uh, being optimistic realists. We need some optimistic realism, like some confidence that God will continue to protect his own. Do you know, friends, that Christianity has done its best work in the second and third centuries when they were the cultural minority? I'm not saying throw your hands up on the culture wars, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't write your politicians, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to be involved on in the local school board. You should do all of those things. But understand that we are the cultural minority, and it's okay. The best work ever in the history of the Christian movement has happened when we were the most marginalized. That is why Tertullian would say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You want to see the church really shine let us suffer. And it's okay. Because God will protect us. Though the world be against us. Us <laughs> contramundum. Our Lord has overcome the world. And he is for us. And all will be well.